to Hebrews chapter 3. And through this series, we're looking at the reality that seeing Jesus gives us hope in his promises. Now, it's important for us to remember some of the things that we covered in earlier chapters. The, the reality that, that the author of Hebrews was writing to disciples. These were Christians who had been rescued by God. But some among their number were now wondering if what they had was the best thing out there. They were beginning to face opposition, persecution. And some were even rethinking this whole Jesus thing. In fact, some were contemplating a return to Judaism, seeing Moses and the law as potentially safer bets than what they had in Christ. That is part of what the author is going to address in the beginning of chapter 3. Now, for us, returning to Judaism may may not be our particular struggle this morning. I recognize that. But I imagine that there, are, that there are probably teens here who have grown up with this. And you're wondering right now, is this something that I really believe or am I just going along with mom and dad? There are singles here for the first time on their own and wondering, at least in the back of your minds, do I really want to put all my eggs in this basket? There are those who have been married, I'm sure, for 10 or 20 or 30 years and are aware you remember a time when your heart, your passion, well, it was bright for the Lord. But right now, Things just aren't going all that great. And you wonder if all this is really worth it. Truth is, we don't need to be at a crossroads for this book to speak to us. All of us run to other things from time to time. We find our safety or our satisfaction in food or sex or possessions or alcohol or peace and quiet. The passage this morning highlights the reality that Jesus is greater than Moses, but the same is true of any of his competitors. So read with me, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Another translation says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted of more glory, worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house indeed. If we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. Would you pray with me as we invite God by his spirit to use these words in our lives? Lord, we do recognize you as the author that we are listening to this morning. And so that commands us to pay attention to what you have to say. The authority of this passage in our lives is the authority you have over our lives. So we pray, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. Would you move by your Holy Spirit among us, illumining, revealing to us more of yourself so that we might respond appropriately to you. This is our prayer. And our confidence is that you are not reluctant to answer such prayers. So may we see you at work this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, this passage begins with the word, therefore. And so, it's an appropriate question to ask, what is that word, therefore? It points back to what we looked at last week where we read, for because he himself has suffered, speaking about Jesus, when tempted, he is able to help, or as Matt pointed out, hold up those who are being tempted. In Hebrews 2.18. Therefore is there to remind us of Christ's compassion, of his care for those who are weak, And in the midst of temptation, of struggle, that is the foundation for everything else that is going to follow this morning. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. Again, we see his care, the author's care, continuing as he addresses his readers. Who is this audience? Those that are struggling, those who are in danger, those who are doubting. So how does the author, both the human author as well as the divine author, address them? He calls them holy brothers. Those who share in a heavenly calling. It it highlights the reality that that doubt and struggle, they, they are part of the human condition. Doubt is different than unbelief. Doubt is a question that needs to be answered. It's a struggle. Unbelief is a statement about God. A denial of the reality of who he is and has declared himself to be. At different times, every one of us experiences doubt and even crises of faith. I can only imagine that there are more than a few here this morning who are struggling, who have questions at one level or another. It's so important that we hear how God addresses those in that place. Holy brothers. 
those sharing a heavenly calling. See, the reality is that struggles don't define believers. Doubts don't disqualify Christians. Our standing before God at any given time is not based on our emotional state. It isn't based on how we feel in the moment. The questions that run through our mind are not what define us. Remember what the therefore is there for. We have a Savior who knows our weaknesses and came to hold us up. When we struggle, it doesn't matter whether you feel like a holy brother or sister. You are a sharer of a heavenly calling. Friends, that's good news. It's not dependent upon our mood of the day. It's not dependent on whether we have everything figured out or not. This is his designation of us. Even when there's struggle, even when there's questions, even when there's doubts. Our standing isn't based on our temporary struggles. Instead, it is rooted in the eternal reality of our heavenly calling. That doesn't shift based on our doubt or our circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but when we read our Bibles, we, we can just skip over some of these introductory statements. Maybe you don't. Maybe that's just me when I rush through my reading. We want to feel the impact those phrases had on their first audience. This word choice was meant to pack a punch to the first hearers of this letter. You have struggles. Okay, let's talk. This was meant to be a strong reminder of who they were in Christ. And the same is true for us this morning. If we are in Christ, we are Holy brothers and sisters. Holy brothers and sisters. Those who have been set apart. Those who have been declared righteous before God. Not based on what we have done or what our questions are at that moment. He declares us to be holy as right before Him. There is no barrier between us and the throne of grace. Holy brothers and sisters. Our standing is eternally based not on emotions, circumstances, or our ability, but upon Jesus who came to call us heavenward and make us his brothers and sisters. So, what are holy brothers and sisters urged to do? It continues in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember, the author isn't saying this to unbelievers. It's true for unbelievers as well. It's just as needed 
by unbelievers. But that's not who he is addressing right here. Holy brothers. Remember that part? Holy brothers sharing in a heavenly calling. That's who's being called right now to fix your eyes on Jesus. You, holy child. Holy child of God. You need to consider Jesus. You, heaven-bound saint, need to consider Jesus. Scripture knows nothing of a gospel where you pray a prayer or you ask Jesus into your heart to get you into heaven and then you have no further need of fixing your eyes, of going continually, of relating with God. It doesn't know that type of relationship with God. This is about relating with the Almighty. An ongoing looking to Him and at Him that is to define us as holy brothers and sisters. So the question is, what is it about Jesus that we're to consider? And the rest of this passage really lays out three things. First, Jesus was a faithful apostle and high priest. Second, he is greater than his competitors. And third, he is our builder. So what are we to fix our eyes on? Continuing verse 1, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. We're called to fix our eyes on him who was faithful in his duties as apostle and high priest. Now the terminology of apostle isn't one that's used elsewhere in Scripture to describe Jesus. What is an apostle? Well, the term simply means sent one. An apostle is an ambassador, an emissary, one who comes from another with a message and a mission. And that certainly is a fitting descriptor of Jesus. He came as God's faithful messenger. He delivered to the world the revelation of God himself. He is so identified with the message that he came to bring and the revelation of God that John actually calls him the word of God. And that's something that was pointed out and repeated in this first chapter of Hebrews as well. You see, Yahweh, this God of Israel, this creator of heaven and earth, is a communicating God. He's a speaking God. He's a self-revealing God. He wants to be known. He didn't just fling the stars into the heavens and then go sit in his room, distant from his creation. He desired to be known. And when he wanted to be best understood, he sent Jesus to represent him and to tell of him and to show himself to the world. Now it's important to realize Jesus didn't come with his own message. 
He didn't advance his own agenda. He said himself what he did was only what he saw the Father in heaven doing. Jesus was faithful to relay the message that God wanted to deliver to the world. He was faithful even when it meant his own agony. Even when it meant his own suffering upon the cross. That place where he was rejected by the Father. So that a message of hope, forgiveness, and justice fulfilled could be preached to us in our desperate need. He was a faithful apostle. But he wasn't just an apostle. He was also a high priest. And him as a high priest is a concept that we may be somewhat more familiar with. The high priest made sacrifices on behalf of the people for their atonement, for their right standing with God. I think it would be good just to think about that transaction that took place for hundreds of years, time after time after time, by the priests before Christ's arrival. You see, God takes sin seriously. So seriously that he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Isn't that a bit extreme? Well, no, not really. Not if we understand what sin is and, and the original boundaries that were defined by God in the garden. This is the same God who declared in the garden that if Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on that day, he would die. There was only one rule. God wasn't being restrictive. Was only, he gave him a whole garden to explore and to enjoy he had all of creation before him. He only had one prohibition. One thing he was told he couldn't do. Don't eat from this tree. And if you do, there's one serious consequence. Because on that day, you will die. God wasn't mean or restrictive. He wasn't limiting him. He only said one thing that he wanted to withhold from him. That he wanted for his own protection to keep him from. But Adam and Eve did not obey. They rebelled against God's goodness and his kindness and his generosity. And they ate from the one tree that was forbidden. What should have happened? They deserved to die. The angels who had a third of their number cast out of heaven because of their disobedience, when they watched what unfolded in the garden, I'm sure they were just waiting for the hammer to fall. There is not a single being 
in all of creation, in heaven or earth, if God would have wiped out the human race in that moment with that first sin that would have declared, that's not fair. Least of all, Adam and Eve. For they knew what the rules were. And yet they chose blatantly to disregard. They rebelled against God. They thought they knew better than He did. One rule. One penalty. The situation could not have been clearer. But, but instead of carrying out justice on that day, inexplicably, God chose mercy. Friends, there had never been an act of mercy to that point in all of creation. When the angels rebelled, they were cast out. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. Adam and Eve deserved death on that day. They deserved the wrath and the punishment of a holy, good God. What they received was something that creation had never observed before. They received mercy. Mercy so that one day through their offspring... One might come that could crush the head of the deceiving servant. Though Adam and Eve didn't taste death that day though, it doesn't mean that all of creation was quite as fortunate. Scripture says that God made garments of skin and clothed them. Now, I don't know how you think that happened. But from what I would understand, for garments of skin to be made for them, another creature had to die. It says God is the one that did this. He took this animal and he introduced death into his once perfect world. Slew one of his own creatures to provide a covering for man's sin-induced shame. Scripture isn't explicit, but I have no problem picturing this being a lamb that he brought before them. It fits with the pattern we see throughout the story of Scripture. Now, seeing the blood that was shed from an innocent animal that had no part in their offense against God was a sober realization that it wasn't the animal's blood that God required. It was man's, for man was the one who was guilty of the offense. But God allowed an animal on that day to serve as a reminder. A reminder of the serious consequences of sin. But also as an arrow pointing forward to a deliverance 
that was yet to come. The sacrificial system that was carried out by the Levites, by the priests, by the high priests, for centuries was meant to function this way for the nation of Israel. It was meant to help them identify with the fact that their sin required blood. And it was to help them anticipate a greater salvation than what could ever be bought by the blood of bulls and goats. The picture then we have of Jesus, our faithful high priest, is as the fulfillment of all those sacrifices offered year after year after year. He was what was being pointed to ever since the garden, to the tabernacle, to the temple. Apart from him, none of those other sacrifices make sense. They all lose their meaning because animal blood for human sin, it doesn't equate. It doesn't add up. It was never intended to. It was simply a placeholder. It was a picture. Jesus came to fulfill what those sacrifices could only allude to. They could only give an impression of. Animal blood for human sin never saved anyone. But it provided a picture of salvation outside of ourselves. That Christ came to be the embodiment of. Christ as high priest didn't offer a sacrifice of another animal. He offered himself as the final and only ultimately satisfying sacrifice for human sin. As both God and man, Jesus alone could make an offering that was acceptable in appeasing God's just wrath against sin. And so we need to fix our gaze there. On Jesus as both God's faithful apostle and faithful high priest. He is the word of God who declared God's message of salvation to all who will listen. And that salvation is only possible because he is also the high priest who offered not another animal, but himself as the spotless Lamb of God. Along with this encouragement to consider and meditate upon and, and to fix our gaze on these elements of Christ's work, we really see the pastoral heart of the author of Hebrews continue to be revealed. After all, the, these Recipients are contemplating returning to Judaism. But it's important to note that the writer is not bashing the law, is not bashing their former beliefs or the sacrificial system. He's highlighting the reality that Jesus came to fulfill what this system was set in place to do. Why return to the way of operating? When at best it was only to set us up for, to prepare us for, to point towards the real thing. 
Now, the real, the true, has arrived. It was put in place in order to point to this greater reality that has now come and been made known in Jesus Christ. So we're to consider Jesus. We're to consider Him as the great high priest and apostle who is faithful, but also to consider Him as greater than all His competitors. Now, when he's highlighting the differences between Jesus and Moses, he doesn't denigrate Moses in any way. Moses really is, in many ways, the patron saint of the Old Testament. Verse 3, we read, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. He's not saying anything negative about Moses. He highlights his faithfulness. And, and the language that he uses here really brings to mind Numbers chapter 12 where where God himself highlights Moses' unique standing as a servant of the Lord. The, the situation that, that develops in Numbers chapter 11 is, is that we know the story. The children of Israel, Israel continually, as they're in the wilderness, wandering, they, they become discontent. And they complain against the Lord. They complain against Moses. And this is happening again. This time... It's complaints about all we ever see is manna. And they long to return to Egypt where, where they had free fish and leeks and onions and a diet that sounds very unappealing to me. <laughs> but they're saying, oh, those were the days when it was better. Oh, if we could only go back there. Have they forgotten that the condition of their being there was their bondage? They're living in slavery to cruel taskmasters. And yet, they see this existence as somehow better than the one they're in now. And, and even Moses' own siblings, Aaron and Miriam, think that maybe God has used them. He has spoken through them as well. Maybe this is an opportunity for them to take a bigger role in, in leading this nation. And so, in chapter 12, we have, well, we have God addressing, specifically, Aaron and Miriam in this, but it's for all um, to hear. God says, chapter 6 of verse 12, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles. And he beholds 
the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? In other words, Moses isn't like the other boys. Moses isn't like other prophets. When you get a commendation like this from God himself, you should be highly esteemed, which Moses was in Jewish tradition. Not only do you have statements like this from God himself, you have the reality that he was used by God for the greatest deliverance that certainly in Old Testament times, perhaps in history, when he led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He was also the giver of the law, the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Scripture. He had no human equal. One tradition ranked Moses higher than the angels, which as we looked at a couple weeks ago was no small statement. They were mighty warriors. But Moses was a humble man. He was a faithful servant. It's easy to see why he was esteemed by the Jews. He was used by God in ways no one else ever has been. He knew God and related with him in a way that was unparalleled prior to Christ's arrival. Moses indeed is a hero of the faith. Moses was without question a key component to God's house. But Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses was an important part of God's house, but Jesus has designed that house and lovingly, carefully selected each stone and placed it where he wants it to be. And each timber that is needed for support, he has aligned and held in place Every brick, every beam. The writer of Hebrews lets these folks tempted to return to the religion of their roots know that, that Jesus was indeed great by human standards and by God's standards. But Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that the Creator is greater than what He has created. As much as the builder of the house is greater than the house that he builds. Jesus is greater. When we moved to South Carolina five months ago, we, we decided to rent so that we could get to know the area a bit better before buying a more permanent home. Now we're in the midst of trying to figure out where that next place might be. We would love your prayers for this. We can buy an already existing home, do some renovations, personalizations to make it our own, or our leading thought has been we would love to build a new home. We like this option because we want our home to serve our purposes. We want to design and say this is what we want it to be. This is how we want to function in this house. We have ways that we want to use the house that influence the location, the room sizes, the layout. 
and the layouts that we've checked out so far for existing homes, we're aware that we'd have to make changes of certain dynamics of how we function in our family life. We think the house should serve us and our purposes. We value us more highly than the house. We don't think that we should have to change what we do just to fit whatever house is out there. Of course, practically, we're limited by another factor that will determine everything else. Money. So it remains to be seen which of our values of location, features, layout, and size will win the day with our limited budget. But there is no corresponding limitation in God. As he builds his house, he has no lack of resources. He is built with the exact design and materials that best suit his purposes. He means for his house to display his glory and his greatness. I mean, think of great structures throughout history. Think of the pyramids. Weren't they meant to be a testament to this ruler who has died? It entombs them. They wanted theirs to be a little bit bigger, a little bit greater than the one that came before because that was supposed to say how great they were or the castles or palaces that have been built across Europe. They're to be testaments of great rulers. They weren't great in themselves. They were meant to show the glory and the grandeur of the one who had built it. Moses was a nice feature as a part of God's house. But Moses doesn't compare to the builder of the house. Another version of the same idea the writer presents here, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as the son, as the owner. Moses served well. But his mission, his mission in coming was to serve the Son. It would be wrong for him to eclipse the one he came to point to and to serve. The sacrificial system he helped formalize was pointing to the Lamb of God that was to come. The revelation of God Moses proclaimed to his brothers in the law was immensely important in the history of Israel, but it compares, but it pales in comparison to the revelation of God in Jesus as the Christ. We're to consider Jesus. We're to look intently at him. We're to fix our gaze there because he was faithful high priest and apostle because he was better than all competitors and because he's our builder. I doubt any of us, as I said, are tempted to convert to Judaism right now or see Moses as greater than Jesus. That's stuff we know. It's not a struggle for us. We didn't grow up as first century Jews. So what passage, so what relevance does a passage like this have for us? Well, the reality is the only way the law or the sacrificial system have continuing 
appeal for a believer is if they, well, they didn't really understand or grasp what Jesus came to do. What, what is the law? It was the way to relate to God. It's the terms of the relationship. What was the sacrificial system but the way where they were made acceptable to God? Where they could formalize and see His acceptance, His receiving of them. See, Jesus didn't come to be a good moral teacher. That wasn't His mission statement. He came to be the way to God and make relating with Him both truly possible and personal. Here are, I think, some parallels for us. When, when we forget those things about Him and what He came to do, here are ways that we can have a similar way that we go off the rails. What do you do when you are confronted with your sin? You f- defend yourself. Or explain away your actions. Do you excuse yourself because of the circumstances or what someone else has done to you? Whether just in that moment that made you explode into anger or the way my parents raised me. We feel we need to justify and protect ourselves. But you know what? That is born out of either a need to see ourselves as good and therefore not really in need of a Savior or a failure to see God as bigger than our shortcomings. So we have to do what we can to make up His lack by minimizing the reality of our sin. The truth is that what He has said about us in the cross in sending His Son to die and be punished there upon that tree. What is declared about us there is worse than anything anyone else or even your own conscience could ever declare about you. For on that tree it was declared about you That your sin was so heinous to God. That it warranted the death of His only Son on your behalf. That is not a pretty picture that it paints about who we are. The depth of our need the ugliness of our sin. That that was what was required. But it also says that he was willing and able to do that. He was able to do what we could not do. So dear brother, dear sister, don't explain away Don't excuse your sin when you are confronted with it. When your conscience speaks the reality of your offense before God. Mm -hmm. 
Don't try to push that away. But confess your sin. Confess your sin to God because He is faithful and just and will forgive you your sin. We have that confidence because, friends, that sin has already been dealt with. The fact that He did come means that that sin for which you are currently struggling with was dealt with there. It is a done deal. The punishment for it has already been poured out. There is none left for you. God could not be just and punish you for the same sin that he punished his son for. It's already done. Punishment has been given out. You are free from any more retribution, any more wrath. Christ drank it all for you. Do you refuse to forgive yourself? When you fall again into a too familiar sin, are you unable to feel good about yourself until a sufficient amount of time has passed? Friends, that's a, that's a form of self-atonement. It's a way of saying, I need to take the punishment upon myself. And again, that's been dealt with. It's not for you to bear. The thought that it's what you do that makes you acceptable before God. If I feel bad enough, then God will be happy with me. Friends, that's not a biblical idea. If you beat yourself up enough, then God will see how seriously you take your sin. Here's the problem. God sent His Son to be beaten and crucified so that you wouldn't have to be. Any attempts to take that penalty on ourselves is like saying that what he accomplished wasn't good enough. Maybe for other mere mortals, but it is finished doesn't apply to my particular sin. That would be a form of pride, self-righteousness to think either that our sin is greater than what God can fully atone for or that we have the ability to add anything to His perfect work. Our sin made His sacrifice necessary, yes, but He covered it all with His blood. There is nothing you can do that is so bad that His finished work won't be greater. Nothing. Nothing you can do no sin is too great for his blood to cover. Nothing. And there is also no penance or good deed that you can do that will make his perfect righteousness credited to you any better. We're declared righteous because of his perfect obedience. We don't get an A plus plus because on top of his saving work at Calvary, we also had a good quiet time. He has done all that is required. Do you have 
constant or nagging guilt? Do you live in fear that someone else might find out the truth about you? Do you live with ongoing fears that you will never measure up? Do you think God is angry with you most of the time? Sometimes He just ignores me the rest of the time. He's angry. These are all different attempts at finding a better way to be righteous. Different ways to atone for ourselves. Of saying that what Jesus did on Calvary might have shown His love for the world, but it doesn't quite cut it where your sin, your relationship with God are concerned. Listen. He created all that there is with the simple command, let there be. He came to earth as one of us. He lived a sinless life. He fulfilled the law by living a life of perfect obedience. He willingly gave himself up for you and me, being crucified on a cross of shame and agony and satisfied the righteous wrath of God. He was dead and buried but rose three days later. Declaring his victory over both sin and death, he ascended and is now seated at the right hand of God, the Father, where he makes intercession on our behalf. One day he will return to make this broken world whole again. He will vanquish forever sin, Satan, sickness, and death. At his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And he will gather his own to dwell with him forever in glory. What about him makes us think that he is incapable of dealing with our sin? What about him makes us think that we can improve upon what he has done for us? What about him makes us think that we can find a better way or we'll get a better offer somewhere else. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. He is the way. Because seeing Jesus gives us hope in His promises. Seeing Jesus gives us the strength to carry on. Seeing Jesus gives us the hope to carry on. Seeing Jesus gives us the reason to carry on. This passage ends with verse 6. And we are His house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is the faithful and wise builder of God's house. Friends, you and I, we are part of what He is building. He is building us. If we hold fast to Him, we are part of His house. He calls us to look to Him and what He has done so that we can have the strength, the incentive to hold on. Look at Him. Look to Him. What He has laid hold of for us. Seeing Jesus gives us hope in His promises.
You feel weak? You struggle with doubts this morning. He isn't casting you off. He won't cast you off. He is drawing you near, dear brother. He is calling your name, holy sister. He wants you to see the reality of your heavenly home. But most of all, he wants you to see him. He wants you to see that in your struggle, he lifts you up. He wants you to see that he is helping you to hold on because he is building something glorious. Let's pray together. Lord, we have no reason to have confidence in ourselves. What we have in ourselves is need. What we have in ourselves is lack. And what we find in the array of options before us, Lord, we will find wanting everyone except for you. Help us. Help us to hold on. Help us to look to you so that we can receive the help that you give us to hold on. Lord, thank you for your compassion, for your kindness, for your care to us through this word. Lord, I do pray for those that, that are struggling, that are wrestling with doubt, that have questions. Lord, you're not afraid of questions. You're bigger than doubt. Would you reveal yourself? Would you speak to those hearts? Would you help all of us, all of us as holy brothers and sisters to look to you, to consider you, to gaze upon you? Help us, Lord. Keep our eyes fixed upon the one place where there truly is is hope and help. It's because of you that we can ask this and have confidence that you will answer it. So we pray to you and through you and because of you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you can go ahead and stand. just a moment we are going to dismiss and there will be some leaders up here if, if you're struggling in any way you would just like someone to agree with you and to pray with you to ask you for help in, in seeing him and fixing your gaze there we want to help you we want to pray with you we want to agree with you so please come up after we dismiss there will be folks whether, whether that would be for the first time that you're hearing the message of what he Jesus came to do and you know I need to fix my gaze there whether you're a holy brother or sister who's struggling in a different way please come I'm going to close with these words from Moses out of Numbers chapter 6 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May he do that as we gaze upon him today. You're dismissed. Show us Christ.